Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast, examining authoritarian resurgence and democratic resilience in an era of globalization. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies, the Idea Center of the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm your host, Shanti Kalathal, Senior Director of NED's International Forum, recording remotely from Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Chris Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the Endowment. In a previous episode, we discussed the numerous pressures on the information space, ranging from economic constraints on independent media to competition from authoritarian or illiberal actors. Among the powerful forces reshaping the global news and information landscape, myths and disinformation have been especially disruptive, contributing to polarization, fueling hate speech and extremism, and undermining trust in democratic institutions. And in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, the rapid spread of false or misleading information has made it more difficult for societies to manage transmission of the disease. For the second segment of our two-part conversation on the changing global media landscape, we're pleased to welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast, Claire Wardle, Executive Director of First Draft. Great to have you with us, Claire. Thanks very much for having me. So why don't I start off with a question that relates to the especially collaborative, interdisciplinary, and innovative approach that First Draft takes to issues that are part of what is now a very crowded field of initiatives focused on countering disinformation. For our listeners, can you tell us about the ways First Draft engages various types of partners through networks, trainings, tools, and the like? Yeah, so First Draft was actually founded five years ago in 2015. And at that point, we were a very, very tiny operation. And our mission was to just build a website to help train journalists uh, in how to verify content they were finding on the social web, particularly images and videos. So if you had YouTube footage coming out of Syria and nobody on the ground, how could you verify that? But of course, in the last five years, the information environment has changed quite significantly. And so in that time, our focus, while still on the idea of how do you verify visual content, has now broadened to all of the challenges that you just described in terms of mis- and disinformation. And whilst we were founded to work specifically with newsrooms, the scale of the problem that faces us is really no one sector can tackle this alone. So from the very beginning, uh, we recognized that whilst we wanted to have partnerships with newsrooms, we needed to work with platforms, we needed to work with human rights organizations, other civil society groups. And in the last five years, we've done quite a lot of pioneering work in trying to get newsrooms and different groups to work together, particularly groups that don't normally want to work together. But our position is on something like this, it doesn't make any sense to be competitive. And actually, by pooling resources and expertise and knowledge, uh, we're all stronger for that. So we do a lot of what I call throwing spaghetti at the wall. And not all of it works, but I'm an academic by training. And one of the reasons I left academia was a frustration that things took too long. So I like to try things, test them, research them. And when we find things that work, get out there and train people as quickly as possible, uh, because what we know about this space is still very nascent. And broadly speaking, in terms of getting these disparate groups to cooperate and collaborate, what have you seen as the as the most challenging aspect of that? I mean, collaborations are always about relationships. And so, for example, when we worked in Brazil, uh, in over a six-month period of time, myself and my team, we flew down to Brazil five different times and held different convenings, partly in, in classrooms, partly in bars, partly singing karaoke. And all of that was because you can't trust somebody unless you've sat alongside them and shared your fears and concerns and shared techniques about how you do things. And so it's really made a huge difference. And 
whilst we've always understood that inherently to be the case, it's very interesting now in the pandemic where we're doing everything on Zoom, we're trying to build similar relationships and it does not feel the same at all. And those in-person meetings are so important when you're trying to get people to collaborate. Once you've built that trust, you can do amazing things with people. People will collaborate and share in ways that you never thought possible, but it takes time and it takes those kind of structured spaces where people can really open up to one another and build that trust. Claire, I really loved your metaphor of the spaghetti in the wall. Could you could you tell us about what, in your experience, what strands of spaghetti have stuck? So what's worked and then what's fallen off and what would you not try again? Yeah, I mean, I think um, we've learned a lot about how do you, for example, label reporting when you're trying to talk with audiences about what's true or false. You know, I really felt, and this is probably the academic in me, we need more nuanced labels. We need to be, you know, misleading, misattributed, out of context. And so we did that and we did that in uh, projects in France and Brazil. And then we tested them and it was very clear that audiences did not like those extra uh, details. They just wanted kind of, was it true or was it false? And all of that nuance that I really thought would help matters didn't at all. And when we did experiments with it, people were less likely to remember something as false if it hadn't had the false label on it. So that's an example. And, you know, the good thing about coming from an academic background is it's very easy to want to go with gut instincts. And I just, I really think this is what we should do. And we all fall down those rabbit holes. But actually, this is all about how can we go back and build an empirical foundation. So all of us, all of us working in this space, how can we share knowledge that's based on data, as opposed to, I think this is what works with audiences. And I mean, right now, we're doing audience work on how, audiences read labels. So when Facebook adds a label to their fact-checking content, you know, half the audience loves those labels, they make sense to them. The other half hate those labels, get more and more angry, and are more likely to see it as true. So unless you do that kind of empirical work, it doesn't matter how many of us on the kind of quality information side think, oh, this is really going to work. There's all sorts of unintended consequences of the kind of interventions we're all trying right now, which is why we have to test everything using rigorous methods. That's such a great point about unintended consequences and also our maybe counterintuitive approaches. You know, I think when we were first trying to deal with this onslaught of disinformation and devising approaches, the fact check was seen as such an essential element. But then people started to discover that when you repeat misinformation, it can have the unintended effect of amplifying it and giving undue attention to it. So are there other types of counterintuitive strategies that you also encountered, you know, in addition to the labeling aspect? Are there um, strategies that you're now advising journalists to adopt to report on misinformation without spreading it further? Yeah, I mean, this is such a a good conversation to have because uh, many, many people will say, well, you know, just fact checking work, Claire. And the truth is, when we say fact checking, it depends on what the topic is, who the person is, who the messenger was. And so we need fact checking because we need to have an accurate record. So I'm really pleased that fact checking happens and it is really important that we have it. But I think we all thought it was this kind of silver bullet that it was really going to help. And the truth is, if it's on climate change and the person who's the messenger is potentially a normal, you know, maybe from the right wing um, and therefore you'd assume there'd be a climate change denier, they can be a really powerful messenger and they can really make a difference in terms of a fact check with certain conservative audiences. And so when, for example, Brendan Nyhan, he did an experiment and he claimed that there was a backfire effect, which is actually fact checking can make things worse. And it was like, oh, my goodness, we should stop fact checking. Well, then a number of actually graduate students tried to replicate his research and couldn't find the same results. And Brendan, because he's a wonderful scholar, came out and said, 
thank you for testing it. And clearly it can't be replicated. And therefore, let's go back to the drawing board. And now all scholars agree that it depends on so many different factors. And to your point about amplification, if, for example, there is a rumor that everybody knows, there is evidence that actually having fact checkers push back using techniques that we know work can make a big difference. But if fact checkers or journalists fact check something that somebody doesn't know, you're giving oxygen to something that somebody didn't know at all. And that's actually really damaging. So there's a lot of real nuance to this when we don't have straightforward answers, which is this always works or this never works. Um, But we're certainly doing a lot of work now with journalists around pre-bunking, because again, there's some good academic research, which shows that if you explain to people ahead of time, the kind of tactics and techniques that might be used against them, then they are actually much more likely to identify misinformation when they come across it. So this kind of pre-bunking ahead of an election to say, it's very likely you're going to see an open ballot box in a place that you wouldn't expect it. That is a tactic from people who want to suppress the vote and drive down trust in the election. You might see an image like that on Instagram. And if you do a reverse image search, you'll probably find it was from a previous country in a different time. You know, the more you explain to people the types of people that do this kind of um, kind of the bad actors and what their motivations are, either financial, political, or maybe just psychological, there's a, a lot of evidence now that that can be much more effective in terms of uh, giving people the skills to spot it in the, in the wild, as opposed to giving them skills after the fact and saying, okay, once you've seen it, here's, you know, here's a fact check. I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't fact check, but it, it, there's a lot of evidence now that pre-bunking can actually be more effective than debunking. And Claire, at the outset of our discussion, you indicated just how dramatically the landscape had changed from the time First Draft started its work until now. I think the the velocity and scale of the disinformation challenge is such that it may have listeners wondering how you actually keep up and adapt to the challenges that are out there. So I wonder, you know, given your experience, if you could just give a few thoughts on what sorts of things you take into account to ensure that you and your colleagues aren't looking at uh, yesterday's challenge? It's a great point. I mean, I do worry in the US context that we're leading up to the 2020 election, but many people are still fighting what we know happened in 2016. And you're right. I mean, the scale is just uh, eye-watering now. I mean, I've been doing this work for the last 10 years. I used to train the BBC in 2009 and I'd say in 2009, there were probably five examples of people hoaxing the BBC. They were, you know, five examples I could count on my hand. I would say that happens within the first hour of getting up every day now. I mean, and this is globally. Um, and we have all sorts of people using the tactics because they've learned them. I mean, the playbook from 2016, there's been so much discussion about what happened during that election that now, unfortunately, you see many, many different groups and individuals using those same tactics and that's what's that's what's caused this tsunami of of mis and disinformation that's so problematic. But in terms of the tactics, one thing we've seen is that as the platforms have taken steps to uh, act against this, so whether or not it's creating the third party fact checking initiative, which means that false and misleading information now gets flagged and demoted, whether or not it's Twitter taking a more active stance on automated accounts or adding labels to state backed media. Every time those things happen, it means that the tactics of the bad actors have had to shift. So one thing we see now is that you see a lot less outright lies, falsehoods, because the kind of things that might get taken down by the platforms or demoted by the platforms, it's not in anybody's interest to do that. So what you see is more misleading content that will take take it right up to the policy guidelines, but won't cross those guidelines. 
Um, and that's what's really concerning because a lot of the stuff we see, you know what's going on. There's like a nod and a wink to a narrative that's trending. There's a kind of, you know, everybody knows what they're trying to do. But if you're the platform, you can't take it down. There's no policy that's going to say this is something that can be demoted or taken down. So my concern when I look at all of this is that there's just a constant drip, 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 drip of conspiratorial, hyperpartisan, misleading content. And if we look at each one individually, I talk about atoms of content. You know, you can look at each of one of those individually, like, what should we do with this particular example? But what we don't have is longitudinal data to say, what does this do to societies where every single day there's this like this barrage of these drip, 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 drip. And I, we just don't have uh, enough evidence to say what what that could lead to. But I think, unfortunately, we you know, and again, I'll go back to I'm an, I'm a researcher. I, I want empiricism. But at the same time, as we see many, many countries becoming more divided, more polarized, we see hate speech going up, we see violence between different groups. Um, it's very hard to not think through the ways that this kind of speech that has been allowed is having an impact on different societies. And you alluded to the, the case of the U.S., but of course, as you, as you also mentioned, these sorts of techniques and methods, both from external sources and internal sources, proliferate globally. And in a sense, unless open societies, people who are looking for a more thoughtful, conscientious, civil discussion can learn from each other and learn quickly enough to at least keep some meaningful pace with the uh, less edifying trends, uh, we've really got our work cut out for us. Just the speed of these negative actors is so profound, as you described. Are you hopeful that we can catch up to these some of the negative forces and trends that have emerged? I mean, this is our reality. We're never going to cure misinformation. You know, this existed obviously before the platforms. But I do think we have to recognize that it's, I think, it's going to be a good 30 years before societies catch up to how to deal with this, um, how people learn how to navigate these spaces, how people learn how to hold each other to account when they share false information, how they hold themselves to account when they share this kind of information. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, in 2016, you had people like Maria Ressa in the Philippines writing really powerful pieces about sock puppet accounts and the ways in which Duterte and you know his party was, was going against a free press. Uh, we, you know, I'm British. Brexit happened a couple of months after that, and we went, oh, this doesn't seem quite right. Um, and you know, we've worked globally in places like Brazil and Nigeria and India and. Uh, and I would say, you know, these most of these platforms are based in the U.S. And unfortunately, many people who work on these platforms have not spent any time outside the US. And so I think a lot of the warning signs, we could say we've had four years of very serious warning signs. And I just don't think the platforms took those seriously. Now in the US, we've got some very serious warning signs. And even then, I don't see, even when the engineers speak the language and understand the cultural context, I'm seeing really problematic warning signs that they're not taking this seriously. So... Uh, I mean, I'm hopeful that in 30 years' time things will look different. Different, but I think it's going to be it's going to be a very bumpy ride uh, over these next three decades. Uh, and we've got a lot of learning to do across all sectors. Uh, that's you know different industries, governments, nonprofits, but most importantly, the public. The public are often not part of these conversations, and they need to be. And that's not just media literacy; they need to be part of these conversations around what kind of speech do you want to have on these platforms, um, and. Uh, I think it's really problematic that the public is is really very rarely mentioned when we have these kind of conversations. 
I think one of the bumps in the road that you allude to is also the state of financial sustainability for the news media itself, which we've often looked to as an independent force and something that can help shed light on these really dark and convoluted issues. But especially now with um, the economic downturn in many countries affecting the financial health of independent media, um, it's almost as though the, the media is not just constrained by disinformation in this challenging context, but they're also facing these financial pressures that make their effectiveness even more um, in doubt. And so I'm wondering if you've seen, you know, you alluded to some of the work that you've done around the world in these challenging environments. Um, How are you seeing media institutions and newsrooms cope with both of these things together? And are you seeing any bright spots in terms of institutions, organizations, maybe finding new ways to innovate or finding new models of sustainability or operation um, amidst what can look like a somewhat bleak picture? Yeah, you're right. It really can look like a bleak picture. I mean, one thing that I've really learned from the work that we've done internationally is again, the way that the platforms can shape an environment. So for example, when we were working in Brazil, we uh, helped facilitate a collaboration of 24 of the biggest newsrooms in Brazil. And what I didn't realize is how many of those newsrooms were behind a paywall. So when the journalists, I mean, the journalists were very, very enthusiastic about this initiative, it was called Comprova. And there was one night, I think it was over a Kuiperinia, one of them said, I just love the fact that the work I'm doing with Comprova isn't behind a paywall. And he said, all I see is my family who can't afford to pay for a, my, a subscription to my newspaper or any other ones. And so they rely on WhatsApp because Facebook has what's known as free basics. So if you access Instagram, WhatsApp and Facebook, it, you don't use up any data. It doesn't cost you anything. So he said they spend all, to, all their time on those platforms because it's free and they can't afford quality information. So what I love about Comprova is that people can find my writing. It's at the top of the Google search and they don't have to pay any money to find it. And that was a light bulb moment for me, which is, you know, how in in these spaces where independent media are struggling so badly, I think there are spaces for uh, deep investigation and the kind of work that there hopefully are people who can afford to pay something towards that kind of investigation. But is there also other types of reporting that can be done collaboratively, that through those kind of collaborations, resources can be pooled, uh, reporting, you know, staff can be pooled to then provide content that is uh, free or cheaper and more accessible. Um, and I mean, it, it, this is hard. Like, the news industry is designed to be competitive. It's designed, you know, based on exclusives and scoops and being the first. But I just don't think that that luxury is something that we can rely on anymore. Uh, I mean, the newspaper industry globally, uh, particularly at the local level, is really, really struggling. And the platforms are filling those voids. Um, but the platforms are not publishers. They are curating posts. And if there's nobody there asking the tough questions and holding the powerful to account, it's a it's a really large problem. So, I mean, there's a lot of philanthropy going into this space. That's great. There's big funds being discussed to help independent media. But I do think there needs to be some innovation about how can technology be um, collaboratively shared, uh, whether that's CMS systems, whether that's other types of verification systems, you know, tip lines with audiences, what can be shared Um, And then, you know, what are the pieces that can remain distinct uh, and those can be the things that can be charged for. But it it really requires people to think very, very differently about the way that the news industry has worked. And that's very hard for people to do when they're in the middle of the news industry, which means every day you wake up and you've got a product to produce. That's not the best conditions for sitting quietly and thinking deeply and uh, doing things completely differently. 
Yeah, there's there's no time for abstract thought at the moment. Um, but let me just pick up on one aspect of what you said, which sort of talking about how news organizations are pivoting to applications like WhatsApp and so on. And that relates to, I think you've made this point previously about the emergence of these private spaces and sort of closed messaging apps and, and private groups. And this now kind of being more of where the conversation is taking place as opposed to in public on these public platforms. And to some extent, that might seem like a good thing, right? I mean, we should be having more privacy and we should be having more private conversations. But at the same time, it does allow for disinformation to spread in an unchecked way and in a way that's completely non-transparent to researchers. And I was wondering if you could talk about kind of the dual edge of this pivot to more private spaces, both in terms of what it means for media, but also what it means for the disinformation challenge. Yep. So there has certainly been this pivot to privacy, which is a term that Mark Zuckerberg used about a year ago. And while yes, I think that it's partly because as humans, we've kind of figured out that telling everybody everything publicly and in a way that can be searched is not necessarily sensible. Uh, But also we have to recognize there's been a chilling effect on speech. I mean, there's a number of countries around the world that have passed regulation in the last three years. Some of them are called fake news laws, but there is this sense of in some countries, people being blamed for sharing false or misleading information. And there's an awareness that people are being surveyed. And so in that context, understandably, people have turned to spaces that are encrypted, or if they're not encrypted, it's harder for people to see them or search them. And so as you say, I mean, in many ways, we're returning back to a place where you talk with family and friends around the dinner table, you know, that was, we've always had those spaces. Um, But what that does mean is particularly when people turn inwards to those that they trust, the sharing of misinformation, not only is it not uh, visible to researchers and journalists and fact checkers, but also the people doing the sharing are more trusted to one another. So if your uh, mom or sister or auntie shares something with you in WhatsApp, you are more likely to believe it because when our brains are overwhelmed with information, we're looking for these heuristics, these mental shortcuts. And if it comes from your sister who you trust, you're more likely to believe that information she's sharing. So there's a lot of misinformation circulating in these spaces and people are more likely to believe them. And the other thing I'd say is that we live now in this networked environment, but those of us who come from the kind of quality information space still think in a with a broadcast mindset. So it's either we think about radio or TV or we think about, well, if we send out tweets, people will see our tweets. Or if we post something on our Facebook page, people will see that. And it's a very broadcast mentality when actually those people who are most effective in terms of spreading misinformation understand that actually it's a networked environment. So again, when we're working in Brazil, and of course, WhatsApp use in Brazil is very, very high. And I remember saying to one of the journalists, so, you know, it's very clear that Bolsonaro has spent four years building up WhatsApp groups to push out information to his followers. And I wasn't necessarily saying it was disinformation. I was saying it's just that's a very good campaigning strategy. He's been very strategic. And I said to the journalist, I said, so where's the equivalent on the other side? Like, how are journalists getting their information out to the public? And he said, oh, well, we can't build WhatsApp groups because that's activism. And again, I have one of these moments of he's absolutely right. Journalists, researchers, fact checkers, they're not creating multiple groups on WhatsApp to try and get the word out. They are relying on, well, people will see our website or they will you know, see our Facebook page. And so I think, again, the thing about these closed messaging spaces, if we are trying to think about ways to counter disinformation, we need to think in a more networked way. And uh, those people who are spreading disinformation have had to because they didn't have broadcast mechanisms at their disposal. They didn't have TV stations or radio stations. They had to think about the, these um, 
these techniques. And so when I think globally of how do we tackle this, it's how do we find gatekeepers in different communities, but gatekeepers in different WhatsApp communities? Uh, who are the people who are trusted? How can we do more with religious leaders who are trusted? How can we think about elders in communities? I just, I think those of us who think about information haven't thought about the way that you reach people because that feels like community organizing and that's not what we do. And that's, again, something over the last four years that I've learned, which just goes to show that this is a really um, asymmetrical battle. I confess, Claire, I was uh, I was a bit struck and even stunned by your observation that we'll need maybe 30 years to get our bearings on the disinformation uh, issue. Uh, at the same time, I think everything you've just described in terms of how dramatically the ecosystem has changed really since the mid-2000s when social media took off and the um, erosion of independent media accelerated, certainly after the 2008 financial crisis in so many places. In so many ways, I think people were caught off guard by the, the byproducts of those forces. And now we're kind of racing to catch up. What might be one or two of the things that would shrink that 30-year time period in a meaningful way, taking into account that ordinary consumers of news will have to change their understanding of the way they share information and use it? Some of these very fundamental issues relating to the platforms will need to change. You know, what, what else would you look for that would allow us to say this isn't a three-decade exercise, but something a bit shorter than that? So I sometimes joke uh, when we used to go to conferences um, and I, you know, I'd be asked, well, what's the solution? I'd, I'd sort of say, well, one of the problems is this is a very, very complex and nuanced global problem, but we don't have anything like a UN agency for disinformation. And then I joke and say, and I don't want a UN agency for disinformation. That's no offense to the UN. They do incredible work. I used to work for the UN Refugee Agency. But what we need is, what's, what are the other global organizations that have developed since the, the building of so many global organizations post-World War II? The only big global organizations are the platforms. And so actually, the truth is, if we want to respond to the scale of the problem now, we need to build out a new independent organization that can work with the same agility, has the same resource, and can learn and iterate in the same way as the platforms do. And unfortunately, the big institutions that we have when we think about regulation or we think about like global response, um, they're not built for the kind of information operations that we're talking about right now. They can't respond quickly enough. They're not agile enough. And so I honestly do think that we requ it requires a new institution, but it needs to be lightweight and it needs to have all of the best bits that allowed you know the likes of Facebook and Google to grow in the way that they did. And we, as we know, they scaled very, very quickly and caused their own problems. But if we're trying to mitigate some of the challenges that have been caused by those platforms, I would say that we need something that is a counterweight that is truly global. Because at the moment, we have counterweights that are individual countries trying to regulate. You know, we've got lots and lots of small nonprofits. First Draft is one of them, but we cannot. <laughs> we're just, you know, as somebody says, taking a butter knife to a done fight. Like we're just, we're not resourced properly. We're not big enough. We're not global enough all those things. So I would hope after kind of four years of these kind of conversations that somebody somewhere is going to say, if we are serious about this, this needs to be um, a completely different operation. I mean, 2020 felt like, felt like the Olympics, like this is the thing that we're coming to get ready. Everybody, we've got four years to train and we're two months out. And I just weep at where we are in terms of being able to be ready for the kind of disinformation that might impact the election. 
And so I, I sort of hope that 2020 is a, a, a much, much bigger wake up call to say, no, this is not going anywhere. It's getting much, much worse. And we need a really serious response. Before we wrap up our conversation, I'd like to conclude with our final segment called What We're Reading, where we discuss what's at the top of our respective reading lists and might recommend to our listeners. Claire, what are you reading? So I'm going to cheat slightly because it's not a reading, but it's I've just been listening to the podcast Floodlines from The Atlantic, which is an eight-part podcast which um, basically tells the story of Hurricane Katrina. And what is extraordinary about it is that there's about three episodes that focus on the terrible role that misinformation played during that those series of events and the journalism around it and how journalists completely failed to recognize that they were being spun a lot of lies, some really problematic reporting. And I just I just listened to it this week and I just was stunned by how many lessons we failed to learn even 15 years ago. It was 2005 and how misinformation um, played a devastating role around those events and that we failed to learn the lessons then. But it's also a reminder, this was all before the platforms. Um, And so when you you revisit those events, you recognize that as humans, we are unfortunately drawn to rumor and falsehood and misleading information. And it's the platforms that have really just um, taken that human trait that we have and amplified it in a way that's now out of control but anyway it's a beautiful podcast it's really really well told and uh, there's a lot of lessons there I'd say for anybody globally about how we respond to kind of human tragedy uh, particularly in an era of climate change and what that might lead to anyway I can't recommend it enough it was brilliant. Thank you that sounds really interesting. Chris? I'm reading Detecting Digital Fingerprints Tracing Chinese Disinformation in Taiwan which is a report produced jointly by the Institute for the Future's Digital Forensics Lab, Graphica, and the International Republican Institute, recognizing that Taiwan is on the front lines of the Chinese Communist Party's international influence operations. What happens in Taiwan often serves as an important indicator for how China will operate elsewhere in the information domain. For these reasons, Taiwan is especially important in terms of resilience and innovation in responding to what is an ever-growing challenge that's emerging from China backed by the authorities there. And I think this report does a really terrific job of laying out that very important role that Taiwan is playing as a democracy uh, responding to this new and emerging challenge. Thanks, Chris. Uh, And I'm reading a new book called How to Lose the Information War, Russia, Fake News, and the Future of Conflict by Nina Jankowicz. Um, And it's a really interesting book that focuses primarily on Central and Eastern European countries, which have been aware of the threat of disinformation primarily coming from Russia for years, and their experiences provide some important lessons for other countries. Uh, An interesting thing that she points to in the book is that some countries like Estonia have seen the disinformation challenge not as a narrow national security challenge or even solely as an information sector challenge, but really more as a societal issue that requires investment from both governments and populations in finding solutions and finding solutions built on trust. And that, I think, echoes uh, one of the key themes that has Uh, been woven through our conversation today with Claire, um, the importance of building trust uh, among people, trust between institutions, and so on. Um, She also emphasizes that the things that she's 
looked at, the solutions and the types of things that have been tried that seem to get some traction are those that have more of a generational outlook rather than one measured in the immediate term. And that's also something that we probably should keep in mind as we try to think about um, developing approaches to this uh, disinformation crisis. Well, that's all we have for today. Uh, Claire, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. For more on the topic we discussed today, have a look at First Draft's free SMS course, Protection from Deception, which delivers bite-sized daily training nuggets via text message to help users recognize misinformation, understand why people create and share false and misleading content, and protect themselves and their communities. You can find more information about the two-week course by visiting First Draft's website at firstdraftnews.org. For further analysis of the themes we discussed today and will be examining in future podcast episodes, visit our blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence. We also invite you to join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter, where you can find us using the handle at thinkdemocracy. Additional resources are available on the NED website at www.ned.org ideas. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast app you use. Special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum, producer Jessica Ludwig, and our editing and sound engineer, Rochelle Faust. I'm Christopher Walker with Shanti Kalitho and Claire Wardle. We hope you enjoyed this discussion on the changing global media landscape and invite you to tune in again for future Power 3.0 podcasts.